from God today, not necessarily through the preached word, because I kind of heard that before I preached it, right? <laughs> but, but maybe sometime during the sermon, or service, or prayers, or worship, you'll have an encounter with God. That's my experience, my hope. And it's something I experience quite frequently. Certainly a, three months ago, I think, almost to the day, I was sitting in a service, and I can't remember whether it was doing the sermon or the singing or whatever it was, but suddenly a thought intruded, one of those thoughts that is so strong and so out of context of what's actually happening or being said around that you pay particular attention. I think God's trying to say something to me. It was this. What are the three, no four, things that you are most certain of concerning God? What are the three, no, actually four, Things that you are most certain of about God. So I'm not asking you, so I'm going to tell you my answers. <laughs> <laughs> so that three four formula, no, three not four, was familiar to me. So when I got home after the service, I went and looked it up again. It actually appears eight times in Scripture. It appears in Amos and it appears in the Proverbs. It's like a Hebrew linguistic convention that they used from time to time. The whole idea was, uh, I've got a list of three, but it's not exhaustive, and then I have one that I want to add to that, which trumps them all. Maybe I should rephrase that. <laughs> Tops them all. So it's three important things, but a fourth which is even more important. So that was their kind of convention for for getting that idea across. So I started to ponder deeply over the months. It's three months that I've had to think this through. What are the three, no, four things? What are the four things that I am most certain of concerning God? But it also made me think on the other side. What are the things that are known about God and you find in all the theology books, etc., which I believe with all my heart but it didn't make it to my top four list. Why didn't they? But before I go into that, I want to give you an example of this three, four thing, how it works. Proverbs 30, verse 18 and 19 is an example. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, and the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. Now, I can understand how... That would be mysterious to them in that age of what keeps a bird up there, etc. And of course, the fourth is the one that floors everybody. Who can, who can understand women? Who can <laughs> <laughs> it's far too amazing <laughs> and ununderstandable. And I mean that in a wonderfully positive sense. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm, I feel I'm very much like that author of that very well known book. But may, maybe some of you read it, maybe you could put your hands up. It's called. Everything men know about women. Have you read it? <laughs> I've actually, it actually exists. I've seen it. It's, I've held it in my hand. Beautiful cover. Everything men know about women. You open it up, 100 blank pages. <laughs> <laughs> so I was pondering about these things and thinking, what are the things that aren't on my top list? Things like God's infinity. You know, I know Andre, you've been... Um, focusing on this for some time. You look up into the night sky, if you had a powerful enough telescope, your, your vision would go beyond and beyond the galaxies and the solar systems, out there to the furthest reaches of an ever-expanding universe, right through to that 
unknown dark matter of the void, he still would not encompass the glory and the wonder and the greatness of God. It's unfathomable. Things like his omniscience. I mean, he's all-powerful. Somebody who can, in a minute, in a second, in the click of a finger if he chose, create fresh worlds from nothing. How can I understand that? It's far too amazing for me to even comprehend, let alone understand in any meaningful way. He's omniscient. He knows absolutely everything. Gosh, sometimes I don't know what I'm going to have for breakfast. But he knows everything about everything. Even the discretion he's given to human beings to make decisions, he knows every possible outcome possible from that. How can I comprehend that? It's too great and too amazing for me. And I think that's why they didn't make my top four. Because they are so abstract and so beyond my ability to actually comprehend. I can believe them implicitly, which I do. But how can I be absolutely certain if I don't even understand? I can accept, but I cannot be certain. So they didn't make my, my top four. But before I do reveal my top four, no, I can see you know you're leaning forward. <laughs> you're so interested. You know. By the way, this is where you give me some affirmation <laughs> to find out what those top four are. And a little disclaimer: certainly the rule in this church is expository preaching, and certainly it's my own personal standard as well, expository preaching. So what I'm going to preach to you this morning is not going to seem expository; it's going to seem topical. Seem. But you know that saying which says the exception proves the rule? Well, I'm going to prove that saying, that the exception proves the rule. Okay. So what do I know with the greatest degree of certainty about God? <coughs> Here's the first one. This I know for certain, with absolute certainty, that all good and perfect things come from God. Everything that is good and perfect comes down from the heavens, from God himself. He is the author of good, for he intrinsically in himself is absolutely good. In every part of him, in terms of the truest meaning of the word perfect and good, that's God. James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. You might miss it, but there's a beautiful word picture in here. Uh, what, what James is trying to get across is like the sun in the heavens, shining with all its glory, the source of life itself, of energy, brightly shining, but it casts a shadow on the needle in a sundial. And that shadow seems to move around, which it does to tell us the time. And we can be beguiled into thinking, oh gosh, the sun is moving. Well, we know now in our 21st century, the sun's not moving. We are. God does not shift like the shadow on a sh sundial. He is like the sun in all its glory. So he's using this as a, a, a wonderful picture to, to make this point. Everything good and perfect in this world comes from God. Everything good and perfect in my life comes from the hand of God. Everything regarded generally by society, whether they believe in God or not, comes from God. Truth is from God. Lies are not 
And nobody would argue that point, even if they are non-Christians. Truth is of God. Lies, not. Love is from God. Hate is not from God. Order is from God. Chaos is not from God. You see, God is good in every single sense of the word, from the general to the specific. And he's always and constantly good. He doesn't change. So the God of a thousand years, two thousand years, a millennia ago, two millennia ago, is the same as the God we worship today. He has not shifted like a shadow on a sundial. Nor is he capricious, nor does he change his mind because his mood swings. Today I'll be good, tomorrow I'll give them such a snot club that they're never going to recover from it. No, he does not shift and change. He is constantly and absolutely perfectly good in all his ways. So, my dear friends, when calamity strikes our life, as it does from time to time, when ill health befalls us, closes down on us like a dark blanket of despair and depression. When bad things happen to us, our starting position, our stance must be, this is not from God. For God is the giver of good and perfect gifts, and this is neither good nor perfect. We must be consistent. If this we truly believe and are absolutely certain about as I am, how then can that which is bad be from the hand of God? If we allow ourselves to believe that, that bad comes from his hand into our life, then we are sorely deceived. Thirty years of pastoring and another ten years as a Christian, how many times have I seen tragedy strike people? A young daughter dies. The mother is heartbroken. The father feels that a sword has been driven through his very soul. And then somebody wanting to bring comfort says something like, don't worry. God saw how perfect that child was and decided he wanted her for himself. So he snatched her away like a rose for his bouquet. Say What? That's not what a good and perfect God does. A man breaks into somebody's house, a friend of ours, beats our friend half to death and rapes the wife. Would we truly say to him, listen, God must surely have a good plan here because we just don't see it right now. Say what? God works in all things for the good of those who love him, but he does not cause all these bad things that are neither perfect nor good. He will walk with us through them. How can we turn around and say, in one breath, God is good and perfect, and in another, he's done this to me, which is bad and not perfect nor good. You know, we may not understand why these things happen. Most of the time we don't. We really don't have the capacity to, to understand what's going down. But we may not say that God willed, wills these things to happen. I honestly believe that that's more than deception. And I want to say what I'm going to say now with great caution, 
but with purpose. I believe it's blasphemy. It's besmirching the very nature and character of a God who has declared himself to be good and perfect in all his ways. One thing I know with certainty about myself is that I'm fallible, relatively ignorant, and not consistently good. One thing I know with certainty about God, he's not like me. He's good and consistent and wonderful. The psalmist in Psalm 25 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Now, three Sundays ago, I noticed how much people enjoyed doing the repeat after me bit. <laughs> yes, could really get into it, particularly the 10 o'clock, I believe. <laughs> so repeat after me. Let's say it together. Good and upright is the Lord. It's good to hear your own voice, though, because it's absolutely true. He is, and we need to remind ourselves that it's not him that's the problem. It's the world and us and the things around us. You know, if we've blamed God for the bad things that have happened in our lives, then you know, I know it sounds a bit harsh, but my advice is this. Repent. It's time to repent. It's time to come to him and say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I was hurt, you know, I was wounded. I was lashing out to the left and to the right. But I know you could. I'm so sorry for, for saying and railing against heaven as if you were not perfect and good. We all make space in the service today during the worship time. If you, if you want to deal with that, deal with it. Where you're sitting down, or why don't you deal with it and then come to the front and let people pray with you so that you can again... Feel the assuring touch of God on your life saying, it's okay. You know, God is so much bigger than us. And when we come to him in repentance, he just forgives us and wraps his arms around us again and says, it's okay. I know, little child. It's okay. So the first thing I know with certainty is that God is good and perfect. And the second thing I know with certainty is that God is with us through all the things in life that are neither good nor perfect. He's always with us through these things. Again, look, work it out logically. If God is also the giver of that which is bad and broken, then why on earth would I expect him to help him when something in my life is bad and broken? How would I expect anything from the hand of God at all if I actually believe that He is the author of my pain and suffering and the brokenness and the wrongness of my condition? It just doesn't make any sense at any kind of level, surely not. What, do I, what hope do I have when I'm suffering if I believe that God caused it? Well, then just suck it up, babe. You know, and you hope it goes away because it's from God. And why should I even try and find my own way out of the darkness? Why should I even try if I think that God caused it? Then am I not fighting God? Am I any better than the Hindu who looks at the untouchable class in India and says, I will not reach out a hand to help them for they are not even touched by the gods themselves. They are be beneath the lowest If I don't believe with certainty that God is with me 
through the things that happen in life. And bad stuff does happen in life, you know. You've got to get to my age and beyond to realize it happens a whole bunch of times. Then I am deceived. You know, again, it's, it's often puzzled me how popular Psalm 23 is at funerals. People are forever singing Psalm 23 at funerals. It's not a funeral song. It's a ringing affirmation of the presence of God in our lives, not in our deaths, in our lives. Listen to some of the words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I want to remind yourself, just read Psalm 23 again. And don't relegate it to the songs at the end of life. It's a glorious affirmation of the presence of God with us. In 1981, um, I had my own little experience, one of them, of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Pat suddenly started getting terribly ill. and We didn't know what on earth was going on. I tried to ask her to describe it for me because she said you know, she was just running down. Everything was running down in her. She was getting depressed, slow, dull-witted. Everything was just getting dampened down. Then it got worse. She described it as if all her internal organs were crumbling and closing down one by one. Now, in those days, you had to be referred by a GP to a specialist. So she went to the, obviously, she'd been to her GP. He sent her off to a specialist or two. They couldn't find what it is. They took the blood tests and all the rest of the stuff. She just got worse and worse and worse. And she was dying. She was, her system was closing down. And I got desperate. It was a Saturday morning. I just wanted to go away and find a quiet place where I could shout to God, and not at Him, to Him, and cry out aloud in my anguish and despair. Because I didn't know what to do. You know, men like to do stuff. Now, we want to ride in with white horses and sort this out. You know. and, yeah, but, you know, it didn't work. I didn't sort anything out. Things just got worse. I found a place in PE. I don't know how I found it. Somebody told me about it. It was an old disused um, dam wall. There was no water behind it. The, the river had stopped flowing through there. But it was huge, towering concrete dam wall. Underneath it on the downward side, there was no water coming through. It was a dry bed now. But there were these huge granite boulders that had just scattered along. It was a, a scene uh, out of Terminator 3. <laughs> it was like a, a devastation. And of course, the dam wall was closing off the direct light. So everything was dark. It was literally like the valley of the shadow of death. It was a, a strange place. And I sat there on one of these granite boulders and I cried out to God, God, please Speak to me. Help me. I don't know what to do. And then I saw the light eventually started making it past the top of the dam wall and the tops of these granite boulders started to glow with light. And in that moment, again, one of these thoughts, it was not a voice, it was one of these thoughts that came to my mind with such compelling power that I knew it was from God. It was, I am with you guys. I will undertake for you. Go home and tell your wife this now. I got up, closed my Bible, went, found my way back up to where my car was parked, drove home and told her. She said, thank you. Yeah. 
It's you know, hard to be optimistic when you're right in the middle of this stuff. The next day was Sunday and Pat hit her all-time low. She described it to me afterwards as if somebody had put a hand on her brain and was just squeezing it like a, like a damp sponge and just doing that to her. So she was very distressed. Came back home. She's got a favorite Bible. It's the modern, living, modern translation, the Good News Bible. That thing has been patched up 55 <laughs> times because she will not get rid of it, and I'll tell you why. Because she, she, when she got home, she opened her Bible and she turned to Psalm 40, not Psalm, Isaiah 46. And she started reading, and she had an experience which I've never had and which she's never had after this. As she looked at the page, some of the words, some of the lines started to glow like, uh, like molten gold. So bright that it caught her eye, and she looked down, and this is what it said. I've cared for you from the time you were born. I am your God and will take care of you until you are old and your hair is gray. I made you and will care for you. I will give you help and rescue you. I am bringing the day of victory near. It is not far away at all. Just on the lighter side. It took me years to convince Pat not that she didn't need to tint her hair anymore, let it go gray. She kept saying, no, but you know, if my hair is gray, then maybe God says, time up. <laughs> but he didn't. He doesn't work like that. He's good. The very next day, the specialist phoned her and said, the last blood tests have come through, and we know what it is. We can deal with it. You know, it's because God is with us that we can stand with such assurance on the scripture I read out to you just now, Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works for good for those who love him, those whom he has called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to be like Jesus, to come to know Jesus, to be like him. The promise is for every believing <coughs> Christian, not for the so-called elect or the guys with collars on the wrong way around. For everyone who believes in Jesus. Always remember how Jesus ended his great commission to us. We get very hung up on the command he gave. Go into all the world and make disciples in my name, etc., etc. We know all that by heart. Can you remember how that ends though? How he ended that command? And I will be with you always to the end of the age. A literal translation, to the end of time itself. That is a wonderful promise. Believer, go about the extension of my kingdom, for I am with you, always, forever. And why? Because he loves us. He truly, truly does. We don't actually understand why he should, but he really does. So again, if you're in a dark place, if you are really battling through some dark night of the soul, some valley of the shadow of death, or whatever it is, come to the front during the time of worship. Allow other people to have the tremendous privilege of putting hands upon you and holding you up before the throne of light. And just in prayer say, here's a son, here's a daughter of yours, Lord, please. Let him, let him know as surely as you've let me know that you are with them and that your rod and your staff comfort them.
So God is good. God is always with us. The third thing I know with certainty is that maybe harder for many of us. God desires to communicate with us. He really desires to communicate with us. It's not just that he can. Of course he can. He's not short of breath. You know, he can, he can speak to anybody he likes at any time, including non-believers, by the way. But he desires to communicate with us. You see, again, think of the logic of it. If God is good and perfect, if he's with us all the time because he loves us, would he not want to communicate? Would he not want to speak to us through his word or the preached word or a prophetic word or a sunset or whatever? Would, wouldn't he want to say, hey, daughter, listen, here's something wonderful for you. Wouldn't he want to? Yes, of course. Of course he would. And of course, the, the Old and the New Testament is this incredible testimony of God speaking. Over and over and over again, he spoke through the prophets. And then Hebrew says, and now these the last days, he has spoken through his son the Lord Jesus Christ. And he still speaks. And Paul wrote about the gifts of prophecy open to the church of our day. And it's written about the word of God and how it speaks to us too, the written word. So then, if I'm not hearing God speak, the problem does not lie on God's side. The problem is mine. Something is stopping me from hearing. What is it? Why can't I hear? Because if he loves me and he's with me and he's seeking to communicate and I don't hear him, well, then I've got something I need to check out. Now, I can think of a dozen or more reasons why we might not hear from God. But I want to give just three, and I don't want to elaborate upon them because I haven't got time for it. I want to just read the actual three scriptures without comment and allow the scripture to speak to you itself. Here are three of the reasons why we can't hear God sometimes. 1 Peter 3.7 Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, that is physically, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Matthew 5.23.24 if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, your worship there, in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. James 4, 2 and 3. If you, you do not have because you do not ask God and when you ask you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Pick any of those if you choose. Or discard all three if you dare. <coughs> now, because this issue of hearing from God is actually a real and pressing matter for so many believers in our day, I want to give you, very briefly, a simple little model. And it is a model which I've used for 40 years, and it's gloriously simple. It helps me. I hope it will help you. It's, I've called it the Habakkuk model. You see, the prophet Habakkuk, he, there's one little book called Habakkuk, and Habakkuk prays, and he goes to God. In fact, he goes repeatedly. He keeps saying to God, Look, why aren't you listening to me? I'm telling you all the bad stuff that's happening in my nation. Why aren't you hearing? And he repeats and goes on. Listen to what he says. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? But the point is, 
he went and spoke with God. Secondly, he then waited and watched with expectation. He expected God to answer. He didn't just fly this prayer up and rage or whatever it is to the heavens and then get on with cooking a cake or <laughs> making a clay pot. Or was that Jeremiah? Listen to what it says. Hebrew 2, Habakkuk 2.1. I will climb up into my watchtower now and wait to see what the Lord will say to me and how he will answer my complaint. He expected a, a response from God. He knew God. Thirdly, God then spoke. Habakkuk 2.2, 2, first part of the verse. And the Lord said to me. He asked, he waited with expectation, and then God spoke. And God instructed him to write down what he was revealing to him. Habakkuk 2, 2-3, to three, Write my answer in large clear letters on a tablet so that a runner can read it and tell everyone else. But these things I plan won't happen right away. Slowly, steadily, surely the time approaches when the vision will be fulfilled. If it seems slow, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. So the model, it's very simple. Ask, wait expecting an answer, until you hear, however long it takes. And then when you hear, record it. I'm not talking about journaling. I'm not talking about writing everything down every morning, all the vague thoughts that go on. I'm talking about when God says something, you know it's God, write that down. Why? I've got seven A4 volumes of stuff that I believe God has said to me over 40 years. And why do I do it? Because I don't hear so well the first time. I get it wrong. I need to revisit that. Say, Lord, did you really say that? And then he affirms, he confirms, he, he brings in more. Until I can say, okay, I got it. Yeah. Understand it now, Lord. I, sorry, I was a bit slow there. Now I'm with you. But I also record it so that in the years that come, I can, as I often do, go back and say, look at that. Was God not ahead of the game, as usual? Look at it. It happened just like he said it was. And then I can give him honor and glory and praise, and I can testify. God is good. He speaks and he answers. So over this extended period of 40 years, I've learned that the times that I don't seem to be hearing God and I've got kind of the record that I can go back on and show me when I'm not. One of three major categories of things are playing out for me. One is there might be unrepentant wrong in my life. Something that's a block. Something I've done and I jolly well know it's wrong and I haven't dealt with it. Well, I mustn't be too surprised. Not that God won't speak to me because he does. You know, he keeps saying, it's wrong. And I keep saying, that couldn't be God. <coughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Crystals in the air. Or whatever. Or, I'm too busy. When I came into full-time Christian ministry at the age of 40, I thought, oh, this is wonderful, you know. Christian ministers, they could spend all their time listening to God. And no, it doesn't work like that. Ministers get so, pastors get so busy with the work of the kingdom that sometimes they forget about the king of the kingdom. Too busy doing the stuff to make time, there's a, there's a busyness which kind of kills us. Sometimes we need to stop and listen properly. 
or there's a lack of fervor. I'm just not passionate enough about it. And I can understand this. I mean, if I'm talking to God and saying, Lord, really this, this, and this, and I kind of, yeah, but whatever. I can imagine God saying, yeah, but whatever, until you're serious, then come back and we'll talk again. Blocked my ears. Second category is I still need to live out what he's already told me. Again, think about this. If God has told you to do something or be something or to change something and you haven't done that, why would you expect a different answer? I mean, at, at best, we can expect him to say, just to remind you, sunshine, told you that. Get on and do it. I think to the 8 o'clock service, uh, church systems, not just our church, all churches that I know of, have got a rather strange way of doing this kind of thing. What we do is we preach a fresh message every Sunday on the gloriously naive expectation that if God is actually saying something through it, all the people have actually done it by the time they come back to sun church the next Sunday. No. <coughs> now we need to process what he's saying and we need to be obedient to it before we can process anything else. And the third thing is the kairos moment is not here. Kairos is a Greek word which means for in the fullness of time. And literally means this. If I ask him for something and say, Lord, really, this is what I really, my heart's desire is this. He might well be saying, yes, but wait for it patiently. Why wait patiently? Because there's 10 people's hearts who have to be changed over here. In another continent, there's somebody who needs to do something else. Right back home here, there's somebody else who's asking him something different that has to be accommodated. When he's worked it all out in the fullness of time, he brings all those strands together in one glorious Kairos moment and says, there it is. And that's when we write it down. Eee, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So then these are the three things that I'm most certain about. God is good. He is with us. And he seeks to communicate with us. But there's a fourth thing. That's more important than all of those three and makes sense of all of those three and has answered the question for me as to why I selected those three as most important. The fourth is this. God is Jesus. Not just Jesus is God. I phrase it the other way on purpose. God is Jesus. If I want to know God, I must know Jesus, who's the fullest and most ultimate revelation of the triune Godhead. I'm sure you are familiar with Hebrews 1.3 and then Colossians 2.9, which Owen read at the beginning of the service, about the deity of Jesus, how the scriptures testify to this fact. But I want to read one more that you should all know so well. I find it the most wonderful of all of them. It's in John 14, verse 9. Philip the disciple, comes to Jesus and says, <coughs> Lord, if you would just show us the Father, then that would be okay for us. I mean, come on. That's what he says. What did Jesus answer? Philip, Philip, don't you even yet know who I am, even after all the time I have been with you? Anyone who has seen me has seen Father. That is a hang of a statement. It's a glorious, it's a wonderful statement. It says, 
You want to know what the God is like? Look at me. You want to hear God speaking? Listen to me. You want to do what God says I should do? Do what I say you should do. For I am God and God is me. I am the fullest, fullest embodiment and representation of the triune Godhead. Look at me. Listen to me. Behold me. And if you think about that, that is a testimony which runs all the way through the New Testament. It's said in so many different ways at so many different times. Right up front, I said you'd think I was preaching a topical sermon. You know, just a three points with a few scriptures backing them up? Well, maybe not. Because what you may be not aware of is that these are the four great themes of the first letter to John. In the, po in the letters at the right towards the end of your Bible, you'll find 1 John, and you'll find all four of them there. 1 John 1 5. This is the message he has given us to announce to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. All perfect gifts are from God the Father of lights. God is good. 1 John 4, 15 and 16. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. He is so much with us. He's in us, around us, through us, in front of us and behind us. He is with us, is what he's saying here. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because it's in his very nature. He is love. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Even if we have to wait for ages for the answer to come, he is heard. Why? Because he loves us and he's with us and he wants to communicate. And lastly, 1 John 2.23 Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Why? Because God is Jesus. Those are the four things that I am most sure of in my life concerning God. We can have a time of worship. During this time, don't stand on ceremony. You can either kneel where you are, or you can come forward and allow people. There will be plenty of people who would be honored to come and pray with you. If, if any of those things occur, you know, you feel you've really been on the wrong side of what you should be when you've accused God of wrongdoing, then come and apologize and accept his forgiveness. It's a wonderful thing. If you're going through a dark, dark valley, it's a good time to come and let people just assure you that he's with you. His rod and his staff are with you. And that we, his people, are part of his provision for you, as is his spirit and as is his word. And that he seeks to communicate with you. Maybe even in being prayed for, he will have an actual word which will cut right through to your very soul and you'll say, thank you, Lord, you've just spoken to me. Let's worship together. Mm -hmm.